Welcome to the East Asia Hotspots podcast, where we invite you to join us for chats with experts and scholars from around the world to talk about contemporary issues in East Asia. I'm the lead facilitator, Richard Haddock, with the George Washington University. Support of this podcast comes from the U.S. Department of Education's Title VI grant for East Asian Studies at the George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. Our partners at the Elliott School that help make this podcast happen are the Seeger Center for Asian Studies and the GW Institute for Korean Studies. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the speakers alone and do not reflect the position of the NRC. Through these podcasts, we want to encourage dialogue about diverse perspectives in East Asian studies. Check out our website at nrc.elliot.gwu.edu for all our podcast episodes and info about East Asian studies at the George Washington University. Now, let's start the conversation. Welcome, folks. Welcome back to the East Asia Hotspots podcast. I'm Richard Haddock with the East Asia National Resource Center. And we have a great guest with us today. We we are joined by Dr. June Park, a political economist specializing in trade, energy, and tech conflicts in the United States, East Asia, Europe, and the Middle East. Her body of work predominantly focuses on why countries fight, how, and using what. She studies why countries have different policy outcomes by analyzing governance structures, domestic institutions, leaderships, and bureaucracies that shape the policy formation process. In addition to being an East Asia Voices Initiative Fellow with the East Asia NRC, she's also a next-generation researcher at the National Research Foundation of Korea for her first book manuscript, Trade Wars and Currency Conflict, China, South Korea, and Japan's Responses to the U.S. Pressures Since the Global Financial Crisis. Dr. Park, welcome to the show. Hello. So we'll start off right here with... Uh, First set of questions, and this is really getting down to COVID-19 responses in South Korea, as well as more broadly, and the uses of tech, AI, and digital governance. So the first question is about technology and governance. How has South Korea used technology and digital tools in its management of the COVID-19 pandemic, such as tracking applications, as well as the government's smart management system. And how important is the use of technology in the government's response? So in the South Korean case, when patient zero was surfaced in Incheon on January 20th, 2020, even before the pandemic hit South Korea, there were several years of preparation for smart city development within the country. This was in order to facilitate other technologies such as electric cars headed for auto, automated driving, self-driving cars. Also, in addition to that, there were tracking methodologies in terms of artificial impl- artificial intelligence implementation in several different areas Also in online retail, there have been, ever since the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome in 2015, the retailers were very much into developing online apps with regard to tracking supply and demand of the consumers and the products. So all in all, 
digital life in Korean society, South Korean society, has been very, very commonplace for the past decade. And when COVID came to South Korea, what happened was there were ministerial meetings across different kinds of functions within the, the government. And the KDCA, which was formerly KCDC, had meetings with other experts across different government bureaus. And the Ministry of Land, Infrastructure, and Transportation, MOLIT, I will call them MOLIT from this point forward, MOLIT had already set in place different kinds of smart city applications or algorithms that were structured throughout the past years under government projects. And one of the MOLIT officials suggested at the meeting a week past the first patient zero, and it was suggested that South Korean GPS data could be collected through cell phones and because there is a high percentage of cell phone possession rate. Additionally, credit card transaction information, which could track the movements of the person if the person does not remember where he or she has been. Additionally, CCTV data. CCTV allocation is quite commonplace throughout the country uh, in order to protect the citizens from crimes and to investigate crimes. So when the mullet official suggested that we could actually use the smart city applications and utilize the data if based on consensus could be deployed through companies, private companies, or through the Ministry of Economy and Finance that has the economic data of different kinds of companies, Of course, it would have to go through a blockchain sort of anonymous kind of authorization and the data needed to be deleted after only 14 days. Those are the minimum time period required to process the tracking. And when that authorization would be given, then um, the KCDC, which is now KDCA, would be able to track the patients. But regardless of all of these efforts, none of these efforts could have come into being had it not been for the fast-tracked law under the Infectious Diseases Control and Prevention Act, IEDCPA. So the IEDCPA was already in place decades ago, but Through MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, it was revised in order to facilitate the collection of hospital data and patient data by the Minister of Health and Welfare in times of infectious diseases. So the data collection is basically upon conditional um, circumstances, conditional use upon peculiar circumstances. And what happened in the February and March periods for the transition and the the laws to be revised under a fast-track method at the National Assembly was that under the presidential decree that this would actually be facilitated in a very, very rapid manner. And once it would be passed, then under those legal grounds, the, the KDCA and MOLIT would be able to work in, in concert to collect the data and to trace the movements of uh, people in a cluster infection. And what the KDCA would do is 
collect the data, get an idea of a ballpark, who would have been in the possibility of getting infected, and they would inform the individual. And if tested positive, they would be under quarantine, or they would go under treatment if their, their symptoms are harsh. So that's basically the mechanism. The questions that arise from data collection, it has been quite controversial even here. And CCTV data, not so much because people are used to it. But the collection of GPS data, uh, of course, has been under scrutiny by the public. But people have been more or less agreeing to the collection of private data. This was evidenced by after the August 15 Guanghuamun demonstrations, restaurants and cafes, dessert places and uh, different kinds of bakeries, be it larger scale franchises or smaller scale, you would walk in and you would have to provide your data also in um, public spaces. There are two ways to do this through the Neighbor app, which has a QR check-in mode also using the Kakao app, a Korean messenger app. QR codes are collected or people can write down their information. So uh, names are not required, but phone numbers are. It's sort of like an identity on you in South Korea. So when the uh, social distancing measures were a little bit lowered after mid-October, people would continue to provide this kind of data. So what that shows is that there is a willingness by the public to be informed if they get in the midst of some cluster infection, if they were on that spot and they would want to be informed by the officials, then you would gladly just provide your information and you would get informed later on regarding the infections. I see. That definitely seems like uh, the kind of technological structures in place facilitated the implementation of some of these procedures you're describing. About medical technology, in a recent article that you and co-author Unbing Chung have been working on, which is learning from past pandemic governance, early response and public-private partnerships and testing of COVID-19 in South Korea, you describe the role of public-private partnerships and medical industries leapfrogging in order to develop and implement some medical technology and uh, regarding things such as developing test kits. What uh, is leapfrogging and how is leapfrogging uh, related to the development of uh, medical technology for use during the COVID pandemic? So leapfrogging essentially is a term in the field of development economics and international development with regard to innovation. New ideas that spring up, be it from a small-scale company or a large-scale company, new innovative ideas to take the field forward in a certain industry. And the literature on leapfrogging is very, very diverse It can be from an industrial organization perspective or a company management perspective. But the literature that we built on was mainly on small and medium-sized enterprises trying to uh, develop their skills within relatively a short period of time of maybe about two decades. 
and then um, trying to seize opportunity when a crisis hit, when a crisis such as public health crisis or pandemic such as COVID hit. So one of the things that we point out in the article is that even before the outbreak in South Korea, once these companies, the Korean RT-PCR companies, knew about the, the outbreak in Wuhan in 2019, late 2019, they were developing the polymerase chain reaction kits in order to prepare because 2002, South Korea also experienced the SARS, which is also a coronavirus infectious disease. And although at that time there weren't any casualties from the pandemic, South Korea would be subject to any kind of interaction with uh, Chinese tourists coming in, Chinese business flyers coming into South Korea, and then flying back with South Koreans also, you know, in a people-to-people to exchange common and frequent interactions across the border with China, it was almost determined at that point that it would come to South Korea. So I think the companies, they were striving very, very hard to develop the test kits in time. And by the time it hit Korea in January, the companies were ready with their products. So the public-private partnership scheme was in concerted effort with the Korean CDC, so Center for, Dis- Center for Disease Control and the Ministry of Food and Drug Safety. And what they would do is set up a mechanism under which the companies that wanted to have a, their RT-PCR test kits for COVID testing be approved through a verification process that is proctored by the Ministry of Food and Drug Safety. Once their uh, products pass, their data and products pass the MFDS, the KCDC formerly, KDCA would give a green light for their items to be sold as products that are given emergency use authorization. So once the emergency use authorization is achieved by uh, the companies for their specific test kits, then they can have them sold throughout private university hospitals or public university hospitals or medical clinics or just screening test sites or drive-through test sites, and they would be paid by that sale. Or they could export their items as well. But EUA and export licenses have been separate. EUA for use within the South Korean territory is only if you pass the EUA verification process. If you don't pass, you could still apply for the verification processes at the European CDC or the US FDA. And when you are granted uh, authorization in those places, you are free to export your items. So this works in a separated kind of process in terms of exports and uh, authorization for use in South Korea. So discussion about, mentioned before, about uh, private data collection and digital governance with regards to managing the pandemic, and then also public and private partnerships in this endeavor. I wonder, what are some of the, that you you can tell, uh, sociocultural norms or beliefs 
including perspectives on the ethical uses of digital and medical technology. How do these norms or beliefs play a part in differences between global responses to the pandemic? Perhaps take South Korea, and if there's another case in the United States, for example, that we could start to see differences in what could be implemented or what could work in different countries. Right. On this, my current ongoing comparative project on the COVID tracking apps or COVID tracking mechanisms between South Korea and Europe and the U.S. could probably shed upon some important points in terms of differences. In South Korea, the IDCPA that I mentioned, the Infectious Disease Control and Prevention Act, enables the collection of these private data and hospital data regarding infectious clusters, regarding individuals. But such kind of mechanism cannot be plausible under the European General Data Protection uh, Regulation, which is called GDPR. GDPR is very, very stringent across the European Union, and it also transcends the European region if foreign companies are interacting with European entities and they use proprietary data of European citizens. And the violation fine for violating GDPR is quite a sum, and it would be a little bit self-destructionary of a company to actually misuse European citizens' data. So this tells you the, the national law mechanisms that are set in place in Europe and in South Korea, they spring from different political systems, but at the same time, the values, the ethical thinking behind the use of personal data, the philosophy of it is also very different. And in the South Korean case, I think the law was, although South Korea has the Personal Information Protection Act, PIPA, the Infectious Disease Control and Prevention Act, the IDCPA, would be upon a conditional, circumstantial kind of a use whereas the GDPR certainly did not allow for uh, GPS collection, GPS data collection. At the same time, because the infection toll in Europe was so widespread and going shooting high, what happened was in the face of the coronavirus pandemic, the European Union set to discussions about inserting certain clauses within the GDPR so that there could be certain collection of data, but not GPS data. GPS data was considered part of a human, and uh, it would not be subject to collection under any circumstances in Europe. So what happens to be the case in Germany or France or the UK is that they were able to get Google and Apple work on an API to actually facilitate a mechanism on people's cell phones in order to be able to detect through Bluetooth technology whether you are passing by, whether you come in a range of detection with a person who has been infected with COVID. I think the idea behind this API is great, but when it comes to the efficiency of it, 
because the speed of infection is just so rapid and fast beyond the what the API mechanisms can do on cell phones through Bluetooth technology. I think that the kind of mechanism that is to be set in place in terms of electronic tracing requires far far more than the API used by European countries. And so, for example, the discussion on electronic tracing came about in Germany in the earlier phase of the crisis when there was manual detection, manual tracking efforts conducted by the German public health authorities. And one of the very renowned German epidemiological researchers, Christian Drobsten, on Der Spiegel, he hinted that electronic tracing would become inevitable in months, especially into fall and in the winter when there would be the influenza, you know, common influenza in the fall and winter seasons, in addition to COVID. So I think the discussion in Germany has been a little bit more driven in terms of allowing for more efforts in terms of data collection. But at the same time, in countries like France, this is still a little bit draconian to accept. And in the UK also, but the EU is separating from the UK. So I'm not quite sure how the UK is responding with regard to GDPR implementation. All of the countries that have implemented API from Google and Apple, even countries like Italy, for example, they are very much aware of what GPS collection, GPS data collection of its peoples can mean in an ethical, in a, in a, in a philosophical way with regard to handling governance. So I wouldn't think that the South Korean system would be easy to emulate in these countries. The U.S. has also, Microsoft has also announced a plan to deploy a similar API and to store through Microsoft the kinds of tracking data uh, and to process it through Microsoft systems. I am not sure how the U.S. has been implementing this. The news came out roughly around August or September, I recall, regarding an API system. But the, the question is also about citizenship, a citizen or a public participation rate when it comes to being willing to be tracked or being willing to give data in an effort to eradicate this disease. And in South Korea, I think the public participation rate has been high because people wanted this to be over as soon as possible. But in places like Europe or the U.S., chances are people's priority may not be in um, trying to get this done or trying to overcome the public health crisis itself. There are other issues at large, and it may be hindering the kind of effort that is required to justify COVID. So the medical data use or the digital means of medical technology may not resonate throughout the world because countries have different national laws set in place. And it would be very, very disturbing for some people to accept this kind of legal mechanism in some parts of the world. 
And on this, I think going into the era of artificial intelligence, some countries not having a full-fledged AI mechanism or a driving agenda based on very articulated proprietary data governance tools, they may run into these issues with their citizens continuously because many countries at the moment are, especially um, if utilizing technology, AI technology in terms of COVID, they are ignoring these kinds of issues. Especially in China, AI development is spirited by China at the moment. And personal data collection is not under any specific law in China with regard to COVID data. People's data are subject to controlling the pandemic itself, not just on conditional basis, but just uh, as a whole. In the South Korean case, after two weeks, the data is deleted, but people are still a little bit concerned about how their data would be utilized within those two weeks. So in the news, you would see people very concerned about how their data gets around, not just in the smart management system, but word of mouth is the scarier aspect when your name gets on the news, because names are not supposed to be published by any government agencies. And only through word of mouth would your name be revealed, because through rumors or human-facilitated conversations, the information, personal information to that extent would be revealed. So differentiating those things in the Korean discussion on personal data collection has been really crucial, I think, but has not received that much importance by the significance by the media. The, the word of mouth traveling really fast, it's beyond the capabilities of the commissions, the board and the commission for broadcasting that would oversee the kinds of these movements. They are not appropriate. They are not uh, acceptable socially but it happens. And they sometimes have made headlines in, in South Korea. I see. And I think there is, in the South Korea context and in several other countries that have made significant progress in uh, managing the pandemic, there's been institutional learning and societal learning involved. You mentioned uh, MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, as well as the SARS, uh, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome outbreaks in South Korea. Uh, and in the article we mentioned before, uh, you and Eunbin Chung discuss feedback theory in analyzing the current South Korean government's response to COVID versus how it's handled outbreaks in the past. So what is uh, feedback theory in a nutshell? And how do you think that it could be played out in other countries and their crisis responses? More to the point, what are some of the crucial lessons you think that democracies in particular could take away from the feedback that South Korea has gained? Feedback theory is essentially a mechanism under which one policy action in time one have shortcomings or some backlash or any kind of negative outcome that is not fulfilling the deliverance of governance. And at time two, 
a future point within the feedback theory explanation, time two would be the time when those kinds of shortcomings would be addressed because previously there were records of negative outcomes using a certain policy action. And time two would would be a chance, an opportunity of improvement or upgrading of policy actions taken in time one. So in the case of South Korea, mayors in 2015 could serve well as time one when there was not a large-scale emergency use authorization of test kits. In 2015, EUA was in place, but not in terms of a large-scale mass production facilitated by different screening centers all across the country. Only the KCDC was able to test and to process the tests. And so patients that were given information that they were infected and did the tests, it would take up to 21 hours to get the test results done by the KCDC at that at that time period. And people would go from hospital to hospital just trying to figure out whether they are recovered, whether what kind of uh, treatments they have to receive, because there was the lack of streamlined process in terms of treatment and testing. So having learned from that crisis, time too, when COVID happens, the first thing that the public officials, public health officials do is to gather people in the in vitro diagnostics, the RT-PCR test kit developers, and they ask their opinion. What do you think we should do in terms of trying to get this virus under control and to have people test on a wider scale? Then the answer comes from the industries by concerted effort. Yes, through the EUA verification system, large-scale testing would be enabled if and when certain companies are given EUA and we mass-produce it, mass-produce the verified test kits. So in time two, only because there was large-scale testing that was convened at a very, very early phase, South Korea was able to flatten the curve in ways that other countries did not. Had it spread over beyond this level, South Korea would have also faced the questions regarding having to deploy antibody testing, serological testing, with lower levels of accuracy when RT-PCR test kits have a higher level of accuracy at roughly around 95%. So I think that the feedback theory serves a great role in this regard in explaining South Korea's revised slash improved upgraded manner of pandemic governance. Looking into the future if you will. Uh, I know that there you, you discussed several interesting and major digital governance and technological use trends that you're looking at now and into the future. But if you could narrow down, if you, if you had to pick uh, the most crucial digital governance trend going into the future and how the COVID pandemic is shaping that trend, what would you pick? And 
what would be the major players involved in that trend, whether it's specific countries, companies, or multilateral organizations or groupings such as the Global Partnership on Artificial Intelligence or other such things? So COVID has unleashed the kinds of social conflicts that may arise in the digital realm. And these have been long-awaited discussions on how countries would implement data protection, data governance, data collection and processing. In addition to that, how would countries uh, defend themselves against hacking, such as DDoS attacks or ransomware attacks, uh, especially because under this kind of digital-oriented life that COVID has led us to lead, what kind of defense mechanisms would there be be it just not just economically, but also militarily. Because once systems are compromised, then uh, the recovery requires your own self-defense mechanism. And in terms of having different countries on the same page on data governance and artificial intelligence, it might be very, very difficult, especially at a time point when different countries across the world are having varied results regarding COVID, regarding pandemic governance. Um, But at the same time, there is the common denominator, which is digitalization and contactless transactions in the digital realm. And this would be the baseline scenario for many, many countries that are not just in the developed world, but also in the developing world where other steps toward development could be skipped and countries can hop right into the digital realm. Another source of tension may arise with the adoption of 5G network infrastructure, which would enable and facilitate different kinds of expedition of data processing when it comes to autonomous driving, when it comes to 8K streaming, these kinds of technologies may not be the essential items required for combating COVID, but they're intended for the next generation of industries. And in doing so, countries need to develop a national legal mechanism in order to facilitate that process. And that mechanism may vary significantly among countries. So the GPAI at the OECD is a combination of maybe 11 countries, but excluding China, which also signals a little bit of a missing participation in that regard. Countries that are like-minded countries that sit down to discuss how artificial intelligence could be achieved through a governance agenda, a common governance agenda, the common denominators may be very minimal. Even if there is a governance set, governance tool set in place by these 11 countries and they add on new members for better implementation and more streamlined global implementation, there may be varying nitty-gritty details on which countries adopt which technology and which countries do not. So the GPAI is an institutional tool that uh, allows for discussion, but legalization of certain things 
it would require a lot more effort in discussions and detailed maneuvering by countries themselves in deploying these kinds of technologies. They need to be able to figure out what kind of national laws need to be revised or need to be newly written in order to meet the challenges into the future of the industries. So GPAI sits as one of the venues for discussion, but it may not be able to guide us into where things are headed. The countries are responsible for doing that first, and then the GPAI would be able to serve as a better venue for discussing these issues. So if someone like myself wanted to learn more about these future trends of technology and governance or the advancement of medical technology for public health response, what resources would you recommend or what resources do you consult? So at this point, I want to be frank, (laughs) not many institutions have indulged in like a cross-country kind of comparative mechanism in terms of research. Our digital trade and data data governance hub at GW has done preliminary mapping of those policies across 40 countries. And the mapping is to be developed more further, complemented with data governance issues. Right now, what's available throughout the internet are government strategies in their own internet infrastructure or digital infrastructure policies led by their science and technological bureaus, uh, ministries on these agendas. So every country has a different window, uh, a channeling person, the person in contact or ministry that is to take care of the agenda. And the way it works across uh, different kinds of countries, you just need to go into their science and technology websites to figure out what they are intending to do. But in many cases, there won't be enough details to make a full comparison of countries that you are interested in. So that's what we're trying to achieve at the Digital Digital Trade and Data Governance Hub as countries try to formulate these kinds of mechanisms. And as they develop those mechanisms, the connecting the dots between country goals, country projects, and the industries that they will push for based on the kind of data governance that they are willing to develop or are developing Those are the things that have to be conducted in terms of research content development. And once we have that, then places such as the venue such as GPAI could be more fruitful because then you would have an array of policies that are implemented across the globe. And you could really just put a finger on which areas need more considered effort, which areas need more upgrading depending on the country situation. And I'm thinking into the future, it would be very difficult to dictate what countries should do in terms of artificial intelligence. Every country would have a different mechanism toward achieving this. And because of that, there may be conflicts arising in the digital realm. And the GPAI should also serve as a kind of 
discussion platform when conflicts arise and these、uh, the conflicts need to be talked out. Mm, I see. Well, thank you so much for a fruitful discussion, Dr. Park. For those of you who want to keep up to date on her reach,、uh, please visit her website at blogs.bu.edu/junepark/slash for all the latest information on everything Dr. Park is doing. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you for listening in to our podcast episode. For more information about this episode and all our other episodes, be sure to check out our website at nrc.elliot.gwu.edu and subscribe to our email list to get the latest on upcoming episodes. If you have a recommendation on a topic or expert to interview for a future podcast episode, please send us your ideas via email to gweanrc@gwu.edu. Lastly, we'd like to thank our sponsors for all their support in making this podcast happen. But most importantly, we want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. Until next time.